There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope you and yours are keeping safe and healthy wherever you are in the world. In this part of the world, it is cold. It has been really, really cold in Ireland for the last week, and I don't like it. I do not care for winter one bit. Not one bit. I know there's people out there right now listening to this in far-flung cold places like Minnesota and Canada and the Arctic and all of those places where it's freezing, properly freezing, where, you know, if you go outside and you're exposed to the cold for more than 10 seconds, your skin freezes and somebody taps you with a hammer and you shatter into a million billion little pieces. I get it. I get it. You, you've got it worse. This isn't a question of winning. It's not about who's got it colder. I'm just saying that it is really fucking cold here, and I don't like the cold. I don't like winter. Winter is the the Jose Mourinho of seasons, the Tottenham of seasons. There's no two ways about it. I won't stand for any defense of winter whatsoever. There are no leaves on the trees. Poor old trees. It's dark and dank and cold and icy and slippy and... Like all the things that people say are great about winter. Oh, you know what's great about winter? You can come in from the cold in front of a a roaring fire and you can have a hot drink and it's amazing. You know why it's amazing? Because the things are hot. The fire is hot and the drink is hot. But you know what's better than that? Is it being hot outside and having a cold drink? It's far superior. So spare me any of your, oh, winter is great nonsense. I'm not having it. Not one little bit. I tell you who loves winter. I bet you Phil Collins and the guy from Maroon 5 sit around in the cold with a load of magpies enjoying winter because they're exactly the kind of people who would. I'm looking forward to the days getting longer, the sun getting brighter and shinier and hotter. And I realize, of course, that, you know, Ireland isn't the sunniest place in the world. But goddamn, even our summer is 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 glorious compared to the freezing bullshit we've had in the last week here. Hasn't been helped by Arsenal, of course, doing Arsenal things and not winning games of football that we should probably be winning or at least not losing. And we've got a fairly hectic schedule coming up. To be honest, it's uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty difficult looking when you look at the fixture list. We've got uh, Leeds on Sunday, and then we've got Benfica, and then we've got Man City, and then we've got Benfica again, and then we've got Leicester City. So, you know, and then, then I think we've got to go to Burnley, where I bet it's going to be fucking freezing. Even though it's a few weeks away and we're getting closer to spring, it's probably going to be about minus 60 there. 
Sean Dyche bellowing like a big abominable snowman from the sidelines as things don't go to plan once again for Arsenal. I'm catastrophizing. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. We've got enough to be uh, to be dealing with in the in the coming weeks ahead. A bit later on, I will be chatting to Tim Stillman about the Arsenal women and the season that they're having, which isn't going quite according to plan. And just to chat about things in general regarding the Arsenal women, we also chat about uh, the striker situation and uh, and William Saliba a bit as well. Um, we've got some injury news going into the Leeds game, which isn't great in that Thomas Partey is out with a hamstring strain, which may also keep him out of the the first game against Benfica. And that's not great, is it? It's a bit of a worry. And I mention it because um, I talked to my first guest a little bit about Thomas Partey, but we we did the recording before we got the news of his absence and the injury. So just to give it a little bit of context there, Kieran Tierney also not going to be available for Leeds at the weekend. So interesting to see what Mikel Arteta does. I might have some thoughts on that a bit later on uh, in terms of how we potentially replace those two guys in the start starting lineup against Leeds. But my first guest today to talk about the bits and pieces that have been going on this week and more besides from the Evening Standard, I'm delighted to welcome Simon Collins. Hi, Simon. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I want to start by talking about the Europa League and maybe the wider context of, of European football and what's going on. Arsenal, as we know, are set to face Benfica. Benfica are going to be playing at home in Rome. And they're not the only team who are being displaced because of what's going on with various travel restrictions and obviously the uh, the coronavirus in, in various countries. Real Sociedad are playing Man United at home in Turin. And, you know, Chelsea are going to be in Bucharest. Uh, Atletico Madrid are at home there. Is there a danger that the the integrity of the competitions is being compromised with this desperate salvage attempt to try and find places where it's okay to play games during the midst of this pandemic yeah i mean it, it feels very strange to me how you know you can't play a game against in the, either of the two countries where the team is supposed to be competing mm. but you can go to italy and then it looks like it's going to be greece for arsenal's home game um but you can't actually play and then it, i mean doesn't really sit right um particularly, you know, in the current climate, obviously, where, you know, none of us can travel at all, but you've got these teams sort of jumping across the continent to play matches in, in empty stadiums in front of no fans. It's pretty mm. sterile. It's pretty soulless. Um, and, you know, there, there will be the question marks raised about whether we should be having European competition. And I think ideally we saw a good solution last year where, you know, you had that bubble tournament and in the summer, didn't you, where you could play the sort of quarterfinals onwards of the Europa League, Champions mm. League, but you can't do that this year because of the Euro. So I think it's a, it's a victim of the schedule and a victim of, you know, governing bodies and competitions not wanting to cancel their, their events. Yeah, are we losing sight of just what's going on in some ways as well in that the the third wave of the coronavirus is, is pretty strong. Uh, there are restrictions all over Europe. 
Um, you know, as I said in, in the blog this week, if someone told you that a Portuguese team couldn't come to England without quarantining for 14 days or an English team couldn't come to or go to Portugal and then come back without having to quarantine themselves for 14 days, you would be saying like, whoa, what the fuck? You wouldn't be saying like, well, where can we have the game? You know, I, I know that, you know, for many people, um, myself included, and, and for you, I'm sure, and for many people listening to this, football has been really important to all of us during what has been a weird time, a difficult time to try and at least give us some sense of of normality you know the the structure of the game and everything else is different now because it's hard to know when it's the weekend anyway but you know we don't have that separation that we used to have with, with football anyway but like is it is it wise are we just sort of looking at this from the inside out rather than the outside in mm. i mean I, I find it strange i mean if you were in you know, an italian person or greek person and you've seen these two, you know, Portuguese and English teams say, no, no, we can't play it in our country, but it's, but we can play it in, if you're Italian, but you can come here and play the game. So mm. why are you allowed to come and fly? I know, I think that would sit very awkward, strange with you if you were from those, those two countries. And also I get the idea, I think from UEFA, they don't, they don't want to set a precedent of where you're going to be having a competition where Arsenal have played one leg or just a one-off match and they've got through to the next mm. round, but someone else has played two legs. But, but surely there needs to be a point where, you just look at it for, for these all these knockout games and you think, right, well, no one's going to have any fans at all, are they? Mm. So let's just say, let's just have all the games as a one-off game and it's either at home for whoever the team who would have had the second leg at home. So they get a slight advantage because they don't have to travel and just minimise the amount of travelling you're doing because it, just, it seems like there's a lot of travel at a time when everyone else is told to not travel at all. And I just think a bit yeah. of, you know, a bit of understanding about that and trying just to minimise it. I think would really help the situation. Yeah, I mean, and people are being told not to travel for a really good reason. Uh, and I know that uh, we hear about the elite sports person's bubble and they're tested and everything else. But, you know, at the same time, these these footballers and staff and coaches and managers, they don't exist inside this bubble they're not just you know hanging around together they have families and they have extended families and there are ways in which they could potentially be exposed to to certain things so it really is it really is quite strange what about the idea of away goals counting in 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 games where nobody's playing at home or away i mean i I almost thought away goals even when you've got no fans Mm. i thought they were devalued but when you're not even going to be playing at at home, I mean, I think that's a significant advantage for, you know, to think for, for Benfica thinking, oh, no, we're going to that second leg. It's at a neutral venue anyway. But all these goals we're going to be scoring are worth double. Mm. Um, and I mean, I remember Wenger, you know, towards the end of his time at Arsenal, would, you know, would particularly lobby UEFA and governing bodies saying, you know, away goals should not exist anymore because part of the reason they were brought in was due to the amount of travel teams had to take to mm. get to these places you know, the issues around that. But in, in the modern day, you know, that doesn't really exist. And Wenger was one who's saying you should just get rid of the away goals and not have them. Um, and now, you know, it seems ridiculous to have them when you're playing in two neutral grounds because there is no home or away. Yeah. Anyway, look, it will be the most Arsenal thing of all time to go out <laughs> on away goals uh, when you've never even played a home leg. But look, that's to come. Uh, next week is the, the first leg against Benfica in Rome. Um, let's move back domestically then. And Arsenal have had a disappointing uh, week or so with the defeats away at Wolves uh, and Aston Villa. In spite of those results, do you think Mikel Arteta will have looked at 
aspects of his team and the performances and been perhaps more encouraged than he might have been, let's say, when Arsenal were beaten 3-0 at home by Aston Villa earlier in the season. It was difficult to see any kind of silver linings in terms of the, the performance levels. I think the, 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 the football that Arsenal played against Wolves and also against Aston Villa, even though it didn't result in a goal, was was far superior to, to what we were seeing earlier in the season from Arsenal, even if the inconsistency you know, is, is definitely an issue he has to address. Yeah, I, I think particularly that first half of the Wolves game was was probably the best 45 minutes I can remember under Arteta, certainly this season. Mm. Um, and, you know, game changes on, on a moment like that and with Louise getting sent off. So I think for that, that was almost a game which you've just got to chalk off and, and move on from and accept it for what it was, which was a bit of a freak circumstance leading to a disappointing loss. And the Villa game was one where... You know, it's an individual error in the first minute. You're punished for it. And then after that, I didn't really feel like there was much in the game. It was a pretty, you know, 50-50, 60-40 kind of game. And and for me, that's been a trend under Arteta a lot. You know, throughout his reign, they've not really been, you know, if you look at them like a boxer, they never really go out and knock someone out Mm. and, you know, clear them out and smash a team. They, They win a lot of games on points. You know, it's very close. It's back and forth. They don't really go out, other than that West Brom game, I can't remember them being really ruthless and punishing a team. They just, the, the style of the football is that it is very 60-40. Games are won on the finest of margins. And perhaps that's because of the, the quality of the squad. Perhaps it's because the fixtures are so congested. But for me, that's the nature of this team at the moment, that there's going to be a lot of games that they lose by you know one goal. I think they've had it sort of seven or eight games this season mm. of that manner. But that is the way this team is set up at the moment for me. Yeah, I think there was a game, wasn't there, against Norwich maybe after lockdown that they won, we won maybe 4-0, something like that. But yeah, there are a lot of quite tight games. And I think that comes down in many ways to to goal scoring and how many goals Arsenal produce, which um, isn't enough. I think that's been one of the common themes as well, hasn't it, under Mikel Arteta, in that, you know, he has spoken more than once about the need to be more ruthless and more efficient in front of goal and I think that was maybe a little more difficult to take when when the team weren't necessarily creating a great deal um, but they seemed to be at least attempting or take, uh, having more attempts on goal than they were uh, during the really difficult period back in November, December that part of it has been addressed to an extent but but still they're not making the most of the periods in games when they're perhaps on top and, and creating chances yeah, I think the, the creativity certainly is is much, much better. And I think a lot of credit needs to go to Smith Rowe for that. I mm. think um, certainly the, the pace he wants to play the game at has made a big difference. You know, he's constantly getting it and he's shifting it. Um, you know, he's carrying on and making his runs when he plays the pass. That, the goal with Saka at West Brom, I think, was a prime mm. example of that, how, you know, he gets it and gives it. And and that has made a big difference. Um, and Saka as well, I think, has, has contributed to it. For me, he's... You know, last season, the attack was very heavily centred around Aubameyang and whether he performed would be whether the attack got the goals they needed. And now it feels like Saka is the sort of the talisman, the main man of that attack. It's Against Villa, it was the same. It was basically get the ball to Saka and see what he does against West, against Wolves. Sorry, it was he who went close. He was the one who set up Lacazette for that disallowed goal. He feels like he is now the, the sort of main focus of the attack, which is fine. Um, I think he's I think he's got the ability to carry it. Um the difficulty they're having, as you say, is is creating those 
those moments and those goals and taking advantage. Now that Wolves game should have been three or four nil, shouldn't it? At mm. half time, the, the game should have been killed and it wasn't. Um, and it leads you to question whether, you know, do you play a Bamiang through the middle? Maybe that will get you the goals. Uh, is Lacazette doing enough there? Because um, I feel like the pieces around that sort of number nine role, the striker role, are starting to come into place. I think Saka's a key part of that and Smith Rowe feels like it, but it's not quite that that ruthless striker who's going to put teams to bed at the moment. Where where do you stand on that in in the striking position? Because clearly Lacazette and Aubameyang are different kinds of players and they, they have different qualities. Um, I think Arteta kind of likes Lacazette's ability to link up play in this kind of quasi-Giroud way with the little flicks around the corner and what have you. Sometimes they come off, sometimes they don't. But he seems, you know, more of a focal point number nine than Aubameyang, who, you know, if you get him in the right positions, is going to score you a lot of goals at number nine. I mean... You look at the Villa game, and this isn't to be like overly critical of, of Lacazette, but he's the striker and he didn't have a shot, not a single shot in that game. So some of that might be down to him. Some of that might be down to, you know, the way the players around him played or the role that he's being asked to play. But I think when you, you know, if you're a manager and you're assessing the team's performance the next day and you you look at the fact that your your main striker didn't have a single attempt on goal, it's got to give you some pause for thought in one way or the other, whether it means replacing him, whether it means doing something a little bit differently around him. So, you know, given his contractual situation, given the fact that Arsenal invested pretty heavily in Aubameyang, and he is of an age where you don't really want to make him run up and down the left wing for the next two years or three years, whatever it might be. I mean, is there is there a need to sort of put your eggs in the Aubameyang basket as the striker, even if perhaps he's not 100% what what the manager might want there? As you say, the, the pieces around him with Saka, with Smith-Rowe, with Pepe coming back into form as well, maybe that can offset some of the um, the concerns that Arteta has about Aubameyang as centre-forward. Uh, centre mm. I, I mean, Lacazette, you've got, to, you've got to make a decision this summer, I think, particularly at a time when financially you don't have a large amount of funds. You can't afford to just say, oh, look, we'll give you... You can mm. see out the final year of a contract and then go for three. I don't think you could do that. I think you've got to either renew or sell. Personally, for me, I think it's probably about the right time for Arsenal to, to move on from Lacazette. Um, I think I agree with you a, a lot. I think Arteta really does like his link play and the way he brings other players into play. But the issue for me is it, there's, there's not enough going the other way to that. And, you know, if you look at centre forwards, someone like Aguero, for example, who always, you know, had that ruthless goal scoring streak mm. and then it was coached into him by Pep, by Arteta to a degree as well, to, to add that link play to his game, to add that stuff where it's playing with his back to goal, bringing others in. I think it's much easier if you've got a centre-forward like that who is a goal scorer, an out-and-out goal scorer, to teach them the other side of the game than it is to try and get a striker whose best aspect is linking the play and yeah. bringing others in to turn them into a goal scorer. I just don't think you can really do that. I think at the moment, Lacazette fits the system as best as possible for what Arteta wants. But for me, I think the ideal situation would be you have Lacazette probably plays as your number nine for the rest of the season, gets you know maybe six, seven more goals, his value goes up a bit, people are interested in him, and then you sell him and you look to bring in another number nine who can who can replace him. So where does that leave Aubameyang in the sense that this is the 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 captain, he is the now the highest paid player at the club after Mesut Ozil has departed. 
I mean, do you feel like sometimes those aspects of his game are are underrated? The idea that he can't link play, the idea that he can't bring others and and work with others, that he's only this, you know, penalty box finisher. I mean, if you put him in the right positions, he's going to score goals. It's it's as simple as that. His movement and his ability to be in the right place at the right time is is really what what sets him apart, and obviously his his finishing too. But it does feel that Arteta has been reluctant to give him a run of games there. I know he's played there a bit, but he hasn't really had, let's say, a run of three, four, five games starting in that position, particularly with some of the players that he's got around him now. Um, You know, starting him as the lone striker when Arsenal were playing in a three-at-the-back system is very different from now where you do have that 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 difference maker, that creative player in midfield in Smith Row or whether it's Odegaard or whoever it might be, that that kind of feels like a different set of circumstances in which to try Aubameyang. Mm, and I, I agree with that because I think the argument before, you know, would have been if, if you're saying you're playing um, Aubameyang through the middle, the question would have been who are you playing out wide? Mm. Because obviously you're going to play Saka, but Willian, I mean, there hasn't been enough said about him, but would, wouldn't really justify playing out wide. Pepe was out of form at the time, so mm. you couldn't really just... So if you put Aubameyang in the middle, you almost were weakening the team to a significant amount out wide. But I think now with Pepe, you could perhaps present an argument saying, well, you know, give Aubameyang a go through the middle, particularly if he's got a number 10 working around him um, to create chances for him. I mean, as, as a striker, Aubameyang, I think, I think he is so, he's incredibly effective out left. And if you had any coach, you know, saying to him, look, you can play your normal central striker, but you're going to be able to play this guy on the left wing mm. and he's going to score you 25, 30 goals from out wide. That is such an attractive quality that I think Arteta almost, you know, like any coach would, would want to have that and your central striker um, in the same team because it boosts the number of goals you can get so dramatically. I think the, the question will be whether you decide now that, you know, Bamiang's got to go through the middle because when you get rid of Lacazette, you can't get a striker of that quality who's going to be able to replace him and that Bamiang comes your number one. For me personally, I, I would keep a Bamiang on the left and, and try and sign a replacement striker. I just feel, um, I think he's so effective out there and there's few wide players who score sort of 25, 30 goals from out wide that I would try and look to get a number nine and then and then keep him out left. What about um, the current moment though where you have Saka on the right-hand side and he's, he's doing wonderful things out there? Nicolas Pepe, who... You know, I'll hold my hands up and I, I thought it just was never going to work again. And I know it's only been a, a couple of weeks, but he's shown real signs of life in the in the last couple of weeks. Scored a great goal against Wolves. I think in general, his his form is much improved from, from where it was earlier in the season. And, you know, I think he's surprised some people in how effective he's been from the left-hand side. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a bit of a shock when it was a, it was a Southampton game. It was the first time we mm. saw him out on the left there. And it... it felt like a bit of an odd one from Arteta. No one really seen it coming. But for me, the biggest change in him is his work off the ball. I think it's just, uh, there's no question about his talent on it for me. I think you, when he's when he's really on it and on song, he can get past any player. And that goal against Wolves is a prime example where, you know, mm. not make someone and curls it in with his wrong foot. But it's always been about what he does without the ball. And it's the same with Arteta with so many players in that squad. He wants to see what you do without it. And that Wolves game, you know, he was tracking back so much for that goal as well. You know, brought back, he won the ball. And that for me has been the biggest change in him because before there wasn't really that work off the ball, I don't think. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen the hunger. I hadn't seen the drive. And, and it's interesting, you know, playing Leeds this weekend because 
will remember that game this season where you know he, he clashed with Alioski and yeah. people were, were questioning whether that was it for him at Arsenal because it was you know, been so bad. And I think looking back from where we are from that Leeds game to now, it's been a pretty remarkable recovery because it suddenly looks like things are going the right way for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you've probably seen the quotes already. Patrick Bamford talking to the Leeds United podcast um, and Alioski is saying he, he can't wait for Sunday and Bamford's asking why. He says, I'm going to play against my mate Pepe again. So <laughs> if you're Mikel Arteta, you're kind of putting that up on the notice board in the dressing room, aren't you? So A, don't do anything stupid, but B, this guy this guy got you last time uh, with his, whatever you want to call them, with his gamesmanship or with his wind-up. You know, don't fall for it, but but show him what you can do as a footballer as well. Yeah, I mean, Pepe, the best way to answer that is on the pitch. And, mm. and the, he did that the first time around. I remember it was Europa League game where Arteta had a decision to make because obviously Pepe was banned for three league games and he could have you know, he could have made a point and dropped him from the European squad and said, no, that was so bad what you did against Leeds that you're not playing. But he played him and Pepe responded by scoring and, and having a good performance. So I think same again to him would just be saying, look, just ignore what happened there. The best way for you to, to to shut up what Alioski has said is is to go and you know score a goal, go and put in a good performance, and and it will end all the talk off the pitch. Mm. Um, can I ask you about Thomas Partey and and what you've made of his contribution to Arsenal and uh, to the midfield? I think we can all see the the quality that he has, and and clearly Arsenal have missed him at times this season. You, you think back to that November, December run when things were so bad and, you know, they risked him for the North London derby. It didn't pay off. He had to come off. He was sort of semi-involved in that that moment which resulted in one of the Tottenham goals because he got injured at that time and missed whatever it was, eight, ten games that I think had he been in the team, Arsenal wouldn't have dropped as many points as as they did. But you know his his importance isn't simply what he can do i think he's he's making others look good as well you you look at what he did for for Bakayo Saka um against wolves that that amazing pass that sent him through the range of passing he has i think it's no coincidence to me that that Granit Xhaka has shown some of his best form in a long time while Partey's been in the team and you know to have those two midfielders together has been been really really important so you know there are there are worries, I guess, because he went off against Villa and it was a muscular injury. Whether it was precautionary or how precautionary, we don't know. But but Mikel Arteta must be praying that that he can keep Thomas Partey, uh, Partey Thomas Partey fit for the uh, for the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I, I think Xhaka is is the prime example of what Partey can do to the team and how he makes other players better around him. I mean, I've, I've we've all been critical of Xhaka and. You know his performances, but I think having party alongside him mm. just brings out the best in him because we know Xhaka is not the most dynamic, most mobile midfielder, but he is tactically very astute. He is good in possession, and when he's got someone alongside him who is as strong, as powerful, as quick as Party, mm. they just work so well together. And I think it is a really nice combination those two. And I think Party getting injured when he did for that Tottenham game or during that Tottenham game was a real, real blow. And I think with hindsight, you know. I'm sure Arteta and his staff would have thought, you know, we, we should, I can see why you wanted to get him back for that game. It's a North London derby against Tottenham. And if you win that, you change the momentum at the time. But if he had missed that game and come back for that dreadful run that the team went on, mm. I really don't think the run would have been that bad because he just seems so calm to me on the ball. You know, watching him play, 
and it's just he very rarely looks flustered. You know, he yeah. looks so at ease on the pitch and just he looks like a Champions League player playing Europa League football, you know, when he's playing with those players. I think he just looks a class above them and he's so key to keeping him fit because he makes that midfield just so much better than it is without him. Yeah, it's true. I do wonder sometimes what he must be thinking. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not obviously as an Arsenal fan, I'm delighted that he has made the move um, from Madrid to North London. But if he, he looks across to the La Liga table and sees Atletico Madrid flying towards the title and, and everything else and, and the difficulties that he's had, um, which may be down to, you know, the current uh, schedule and preseason issues and all those kind of things, he must perhaps have a little bit of a wistful look. But at the same time, I suppose Arsenal might look at it as something that that drives him, that motivates him to to sort of raise the level around him. Because you know, being frank and honest about where Arsenal are, it's a long way from where uh, he used to be with Atletico Madrid. Yeah, I mean, he, he's taken a challenge by coming to do this, isn't <clears> he? You know, he's not. The easy option for him would have been to stay at Atletico and keep enjoying his success there, very settled. You know, he knows his place in the team, but for him to come and want to be a part of this is obviously, for me, a, a sign of his ambition and a, a chance for him to be part of a project that he was sold to him and he thought was was worth being a part of. But he, I think he's had a difficult start. I think he'll have you know, found it particularly tough, I think, with that injury. I think um, Arteta was saying how it'd been so tough, particularly with COVID, you know, if you're, you're a new player at a new club, you sign and get injured, you're basically just stuck at home. You know, you're not going out and seeing mm. London or spending some time with that. You're basically sat there desperately trying to get fit. And his character is like that. So I think it was, it was no real surprise that he was banging on Arteta's door to get in the team, but just going to have to be careful with them. I think, because we've seen a, f- a few games, haven't we, where it seems to get to around 70 minutes and he sort of feels something and comes off. Maybe having these eight days off before Leeds would actually been a bit of a blessing for him because just needed a bit of rest and uh, to get fit again. Just finally, on the on the schedule itself and on the, the way things have gone for Arsenal in the last week, people have said, look, Premier League has diminished in importance compared to the Europa League. Um, the chances of achieving a, a European finish are much more difficult when you when you drop points against Wolves and Aston Villa. I mean, how, how do you feel Mikel Arteta should should manage this um, situation and this schedule. I mean, it's a really tricky couple of weeks coming up when you look at Leeds on Sunday, Benfica, Man City, Benfica, Leicester. These are, maybe it's hyperbolic to say season-defining games, but they certainly would go a long way to making everyone feel good if Arsenal could come out of them with good results. And, and, you know, there would be a lot of questions if it didn't happen. I mean, can Arsenal afford to prioritise Europe over the Premier League, for example? I'm not sure that's the case. I think they've got to kind of go game by game, as cliched as that sounds. But there are, you know, people who say, look, the prize that you might get from the Europa League is is worth the priority. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think this run of this run of games is season defining. I think partly because of obviously the, the nature of the the knockout football, but also because of the opposition. And it's not inconceivable, as, as bad a thought as it is for Arsenal fans to to lose, you know, those two games against Benfica and to lose to City and Leicester. It's, it's could easily happen. They're quality opposition, mm. but I think Arteta will have to take it game by game as you say I don't think you're at a point where you can prioritise Europa League because it is the round of the last 32 you know if yeah. you were at the quarterfinal stage you could start saying right you know if we win these five games 
we get into the Champions League at the moment, it's still a long way to go. And, and the league, the way it is with everyone beating everyone, could change so dramatically. You know, if you look back at last week, if Arsenal had beaten Wolves and Aston Villa, they'd have been right up pushing that mm. top four place. So it can change very quickly. And I always remember Mourinho, when he was at Man United, would he was quite open about how when they were chasing that Europa League that he eventually won, how he, he was saying, you know, we're still going for both. And then it got to, I think, the quarterfinals of the Europa League. And he said, no, right, Europa League is now the priority. But for now, it's too early to, to, to prioritise it when it's the round of last 32. There's far too many games to go, far too many variables. So you've got to sort of take it week by week. All right. Well, look, we'll see what happens this weekend against Leeds and, of course, next week uh, against Benfica in Italy. Anyway, that's the world we're living in right now. Simon, listen, thanks very much indeed. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Simon. You can find him on Twitter. He is at SR underscore Collings, at SR underscore Collings. And, of course, he writes about Arsenal for the Evening Standard. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right now, to talk a bit about the Arsenal women, uh, the season so far, what's gone wrong, and lots more besides. The man who knows all there is to know about the Arsenal women's team, it is Tim Stillman. Hi, Tim. Hello there. Let's begin with the league table. It's not looking particularly great right now. Arsenal are in fourth. Um, what's, in very broad terms, what has happened this season? Why uh, are Arsenal lagging so far behind? Currently, 12 points behind leaders Chelsea. They just played Chelsea on Wednesday night and it did not go well. So what, what's been the, the story of the season from the Arsenal women perspective? Yeah, sure. So just as a as a bit of a, I don't know if caveat's the right word, but mm. I guess just to frame this is that I think people, um, particularly, you know, um, if, if they only have like a tangential interest in the women's team, should kind of separate the men's team from the women's team here, because mm. if the men's team were in fourth place, we wouldn't describe that as lagging at the moment. Yeah, that's true. And we'd, we'd be <laughs> delighted with scrapping for the last Champions League place. Different for Arsenal women. They've won the league more than anyone else. They've won the FA Cup more than anyone else. They've won the League Cup more than anyone else. And in this very pleasant alternate universe, they are the only British team to have won the Champions League. Um, I suspect that won't be the case for much longer, but it is still the case. So I would say compare Arsenal women more um, with like Manchester United in the men's game. So Mm. like fourth is not good enough. Um, They could finish third this season and that will qualify them for the Champions League, which is fine. 
still not going to make most people happy. The expectations are higher because of who Arsenal women are. So as as for the season, um, that does represent an underperformance, I think, with this squad. I think this squad is, unfortunately, Chelsea do just have the best squad by virtue of numbers. They've pumped a load of money in and have two high-quality starting 11s that would both compete for the league title. Um, Arsenal can and should compete better with them, but Chelsea are probably the touchstone. But Arsenal and Manchester City, I think, are on similar footing in terms of the talent available to them. And then you've got Manchester United, who are coming up, albeit they've come up a little bit more quickly than a lot of people expected. And I think they've caught Mm. maybe Arsenal off guard because we thought that maybe Manchester United would be where Arsenal are now, kind of on in fourth, chasing that last Champions League spot. But but not quite getting it. Um, Arsenal have added seven players to the squad in the last 12 months. There's been plenty of investment in the playing side, good players as well from, from really big clubs, big international experience. Um, but they've underperformed and there are two big problems that Joe Montemoro has that he's struggling to solve. One is the record against com- their competitors, the big teams. They keep losing to Chelsea and Manchester City and they've lost to Manchester United this season. Mm. They struggle in those games and Joe is struggling to find an answer to that. And that is a big problem because the way the league is set up, those games have an outsized importance because those teams generally beat everyone else. So how you do against your competitors really sets up your season and Arsenal are falling short in those games. Um, The other big problem they have is injuries. Um, They're getting lots and lots of soft tissue injuries. And so they keep going into these games with um, depleted squads, or they prepare for a game all week and Joe has a starting lineup in mind and then two hamstrings go pop on Friday and he has to change his plans and it also means he doesn't have as much on the bench. And again, that is a big problem that Arsenal don't seem to be able to solve. In fairness, that's a problem. Soft tissue injuries is a problem this season. The injuries they had in previous seasons were all knee injuries, impact injuries. Mm. And actually, all of the players that had those pretty much have gone. Uh, they refreshed the squad, but now they're just getting all these muscle injuries. How is, I mean, we can all understand that the the, 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 the schedule and the training and the, mm. you know, everything else, you know, in the women's game and the men's game has been completely uh, turned upside down by what's going on with COVID. And, you know, I think... Uh, you know that's been a factor for 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 many clubs, but is that um, prevalence of of soft soft tissue in, uh, injuries is that being seen at other clubs, or is it quite specific to Arsenal in the context of this season? It is being seen at other clubs, but not nearly to the same extent. And what's what's unusual, um, or at least the theme with the injuries, is mm. they're all happening in training. Nobody is pulling up in games. They're pulling up in training. Um, I've spoken to Joe about this a few times this season. He said they did a big internal review. They changed some things about recovery and about loading. Um, They've analysed the pitches they train on. They're training at Hale End at the moment because of COVID. Um, You know, they've had to reduce the capacity at Colney. So they're at at Hale End. So they are on different pitches at the moment and things like that. Mm. And Joe says they've analysed all that. But then last week, they were about to play Manchester City and Chelsea in the same week. Three first team players, three big players all have muscle injuries in training. Um, There there may be as a slightly mitigating factor that they had 
games postponed at the 11th hour on consecutive weekends. And mm. when I spoke to him, Joe seemed to think that was a factor in these injuries. The fact that he'd prepared players for a big game and then the game didn't happen two weeks in a row. And then Arsenal were in a situation where they had one game in seven weeks, basically due to a mixture of the weather and a COVID case. Sure. So there have been other things, but it is definitely an outsized problem for Arsenal and the fact that it's happening in the last week or so suggests again they don't really have a solution mm. and it, it sounds weird to say but I think everything else is fine largely um, like I th they beat all the other teams as they should largely um, I think that I th personally think the squad is really good it's got a nice balance to it it's just not available enough and they have this problem against big teams and yeah. that that's just if that's your only problem, that is a huge problem um, with the way the WSL is. Sure. I, I, you did a piece a couple of weeks ago uh, over on Arsblog News uh, talking about the difficulties of fostering or maintaining or cultivating a, a team spirit given mm. the, the training schedules and the restrictions that are involved there. I mean, is that, again, is that something that's particular to Arsenal or is that not something that that pretty much every club at every team is going to have to deal with in one way or another yeah that's that's just something that every club like I, I think that that's quite true and particularly in the women's game you know the players are very close lots of them live together um it, it is a tight group at Arsenal um and and so that like I do think that's a problem but it is a problem for everyone I, I guess the only um the only thing you'd add is, like I said, Arsenal have brought in seven players um, in the last year. All of them, I mean, two of them are English, but have come back from college in America. They've mm. all come from other countries. And, and that's got to be difficult moving during COVID. And three of them are Australian. So they're putting up with, um, you know, differences in climate and things like that. Sure. But they're looking at home at the moment. And home looks very different. Um, where yeah. they are and that's that's difficult for them because they're not able to get home and see their families and not only that but their families are, for the Australian girls are all living fairly freely um, COVID free so that's that's difficult as mm. well but again if you looked around every squad there would be you know there would be there are lots of Australians in the WSL at the yeah. moment there are there are lots of teams dealing with this uh, a question many people will have is is um, about the future of Vivian Miedema, whose contract mm. I think runs out next summer. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously that's a pressing issue because she's such a good player and such an important goal scorer. What um, what's the future likely to hold for her? Obviously, uh, mm. you know you you can't predict the future, but what's your sense of what's what's happening with her? I know the club have been uh, speaking about a new contract, but but where where are things standing mm. right now? So there there are negotiations ongoing um, at the moment, but while while it's not signed. Um, that you know, obviously, that that is a big worry for everyone. Again, just I guess for additional context, um, eight, eighteen months on a on a female player's contract is is slightly different compared to the men's game because mm. typically contracts are a year or two. At Arsenal and other big clubs, the bigger players will get three. Um, in in Miedema's case, for example, the last time she signed up was December twenty eighteen. She signed a three and a half year contract, okay. which I believe at the time was the only one of its kind in the W. But that's uh, that that's changed now, and that mm. that's because of the 
the kind of the caliber of player she is. If Arsenal don't qualify for the Champions League this year, I think it'd be very difficult to keep hold of her. Obviously, all of the big clubs in Europe are interested and would be interested. And if Arsenal aren't in the Champions League, then that's going to be a problem. Even then, this this is um, the best striker in the world, no doubt, um, absolutely no doubt, and huge calibre of player. A player I don't think Arsenal were ever going to have for 10 years or so, um, put it that way, but sure. it's one of those, a bit like when the men's team had Fabregas, you know, and you thought, okay, we're not going to have him his whole career, but hopefully we can keep him until he's like 27, 28. Yeah. Uh, you know, Medium is 24 at the moment, and I think what Arsenal would really want is at least one more contract out of her. But... You know, she's going to be looking around. Um, This is a player that should be winning the Champions League, um, should be in a Champions League winning team and one of the best players in that team. That's the calibre she is. (sighs) And so she's going to have to be, I would imagine, convinced by the club that that is where she can go. Um, You know, let's say they offer a three-year contract that within the next three years that Arsenal can become a team that competes to win the Champions League. And if they're not even going to be in it in her first year of contract, I think... Mm. um, that, that that will be an issue but overall I think she would need to be persuaded by the direction of the club which I think with a player of that calibre you would absolutely expect Sure uh, so I mean just to point out it's the top three that make the Champions League Arsenal are currently fourth seven points behind Manchester City so there's a, a fair amount of ground to make up particularly when you consider the as you say the record against the the other uh, big teams in the league just a, a wider point on on how the Arsenal women are run. Um, mm. you know, I'm not speculating in any way on, on the future of, of the manager or anything like that. But if Arsenal, for example, don't finish in the Champions League places, I guess every football manager at every level experiences pressure. Mm-hmm. We know in the, in the men's side of things, more or less, you know, what the structures are, what the operational structures are, who makes decisions about, you know, what happens when you need to to change personnel uh, at that level. Mm-hmm. What do we know about how that works for the women's team? Because, it you know, it's it's not clear to me, um, and that could be just lack of knowledge on my part, but, but how would that work if, if such a thing came to pass? So I'm glad you asked because it's not entirely clear to me either. Okay. <laughs> um, and and so I'm, you know, look, I'm not going to proclaim, proclaim myself the absolute oracle, but, I, you know, I like to think I know quite a bit about what's going on with the setup. It, it's, to my knowledge, has never really been clarified but um, it, it used to be Ivan Gazidis, so you'd imagine it's it's Vinay, really. Um, I don't know how much Edu, if anything, has to do with it. I've got no idea. Um, but it, it would certainly come under Vinay. I mean, just, just kind of historically, um, David Dean, um, a, a figure who, by the way, I, I've been quite critical of, and I think his memory is kind of a little bit overdone, One place in which his legacy is absolutely unimpeachable is with the women um, with the Arsenal women David Dean is the reason they were the force that they were, he Mm. took a very active interest um, and really put his money where his mouth was Um, you know, Ivan Gazidis um, kind of took it over um, and uh, you know things ticked over okay the investment was okay um, well, well, was good actually, and and it's been good to this point as well. What it's going to be going forward, I think, is the question. Arsenal are in a cycle where they're laying people off. They're mm. laying off more people. Uh, there are more redundancies, so that suggests that 
Um, we can't anticipate that the budget for the women's team is going to grow um, or that the support staff or anything like that. Again, I don't know that. That's not privileged info. I'm speculating. Um, but the, so, so I imagine it's Vinay, uh, given that it used to be Ivan Gazidis. Um, I used to see Ivan Gazidis at games every now and then. I used to see Sir Chips at games very regularly. So Sir Chips was there um, quite a lot. So I imagine that it became part of his remit um, to report into Ivan on on kind of what was happening. Right. Um, at the moment, obviously with COVID, not seeing anyone at games at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah. So it's harder for me to make that inference. But it's um, it's it's not been communicated clearly at all to the point that i don't think i really know sure um, i mean and, with the, and that probably yeah. tells you something yeah i mean with with all due respect to to vinay whose um uh wheelhouse is more commercial and business you know it mm-hmm. would, would maybe be something that that is done by committee or you hire some uh, people in to give you the you know the best candidates to do your due diligence on whoever um, you might be considering yep. for the job if it were to become available i guess rather than vinny vinay yeah. himself you know saying right well this we're going for this guy or this gal to be the the new boss yeah so when so for example when um Joe Montemoro was hired or before him Pedro Loza Pedro Loza was very much an Ivan appointment um he came over from the states Ivan knew him that that was Ivan's appointment um and Joe Montemoro came from the City group um who Ivan had 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 dealings with as well uh he came from Melbourne City so you you can see Ivan's fingerprints um, on those, um, th- there are structures within Arsenal Women as well. Um, you know, I, I guess to report into the board mm. um, on this, but it, it's not as clear to me as as it used to be, uh, no doubt. Okay, well, look, that's that's something. Hopefully, that's a, a way down the line anyway, and the uh, the women's team can turn things around between now and the end of the season and finish much more closely to where people expect. I just want to talk to you quickly about the uh, the article, your column this week on the site about centre forward and goal scoring and it's something I spoke a little bit earlier on the show to to, to Simon Collings um, you know about what Mikel Arteta can do to get this team to score more goals because I think most people even if they haven't been particularly pleased by results would have to acknowledge that the football Arsenal are playing is better than it was earlier in the season. No doubt about it. We we are creating more chances I think. Um, I did yep. I did look at this the other day um, I can't remember what the exact figures were. I, I kind of thought it was going to be a lot less in that period in which um, we were losing games all the time. I sort of totted up our our attempts on goal and then post that after the Chelsea game. And I think it was something like averaging at 11 and a half in the games that we lost. And it's maybe 13 and a half in, in the games that we've done better in, in mm. the, the period. So it's not hugely different, but the 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 focal point of the attack or the number the number 9 the main striker is the talking point between Lacazette and Aubameyang Lacazette seems a little bit more in line with what Mikel Arteta wants from a player in that position whereas Aubameyang mm. is much more a finisher a penalty box guy a movement guy but your contention is that like you know we we have given him a big contract yep. um it's time to give him a run in this position Yep, absolutely. As as far as I'm concerned, the club have made the decision, whether they like it or not. And if 
if they if they decided to give Aubameyang that contract and didn't have a clear idea of how to use him thereafter, that is that is a really bad indictment on on them and the manager as well because mm. I, I think it's fairly obvious the manager gave his full throated support to it. Um, look. Abamyang, we can't have Abamyang playing on the wing when he's 33, 34. That is not the way to look after him um, or his career. And we have other players who who play in that position um, who who I think we need to open up space for, like Martinelli. Um, if if we want to keep Pepe um, on the left wing, for example, even Bukayo Saka, like we have plenty of players for those positions. And so for me, the, the question is the centre forward one. Mm. They've decided not to offer a contract to Lacazette, and they have given a contract to Abamyang. So as far as I'm concerned, the decision has been made, um, whether they've done it strategically or not. And so what they should do, in my view, is concentrate on how to make that work, because Arsenal don't have the money to go out and say, right, now we need another £50 million striker. Like, we've done that twice in the last, what are we talking Mm just under four years we spent a hundred million on strikers we can't go and do that again um this is what they've got and i really think that if this is not what arteta's thinking my hope um futile as it might may be would be that someone like edu would say look we haven't got any more money to spend on the attack you made the decision uh, or we made the decision or whoever on a bambiang on willian that like that's it attack is done work with it there are other areas of the pitch where we need to reinforce. Um, as an aside, I'd say the same about Saliba, where I do. I'd say, look, we've invested in this guy. You're the coach. Make it work, whether you know whether you like him or not. Um, so yeah, so so I think it's kind of incumbent on them to do mm. it anyway. And I do think there is a way to do it when you. And I mentioned this in the column. Leicester are doing it with Vardy. He's not going chasing around the whole opponent's half anymore. He's staying in the area. Yeah. And the best the best example is Atletico Madrid and Suarez. Um, they've, he's 34 now. Again, he's not playing like he used to, but they've got three young guys behind him, you know, a good winger, a couple of creative players. And they're just saying, you just stay in the penalty area. Mm. Let us worry about how we get you the ball. And and I think that's, that's it, like being honest, I'm not sure that's, that is the absolute optimal way to go. Um, maybe the decision to just let Aubameyang's contract run or not to give him a new one so that Arteta could get the type of striker he likes would have been the the most optimal one. They haven't done that. They made the decision to give him a contract. Mm. They have to make it work. And for me, this is the best way to do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the the point about... You know, there were concerns about his age and there were concerns about giving a contract of length to a player of that age uh, up to the point where that contract ends. So I think it's really important that you look at that and think, what is the best way to get the maximum out of this guy that we're paying this much money to? Mm -hmm. And, you know not chasing up and down uh, fullbacks up and down the left-hand side seems the pretty obvious one. So... Yeah, and I, I think also a, a lot of um, people think that Aubameyang is like a real pace merchant. And actually, I, I don't see him like that. I, I do see him as much more of a Cavani, Aguero type. Like, he, he can run, don't get me mm. wrong. Um, and uh, and that power is only going to decrease as the years go on. But I, I don't look at many of his goals and think, oh, that was a turn of pace. I look at his goals and think, wow, he found some space in the area there that I didn't see. And that's what we've got to lean into that that's that's who he is anyway i think and that is increasingly what he's going to become so that's what we're going to have to play around and look if you put like martinelli outside him and saka outside him and smithrow or an other behind him he's got three really sets of young legs 
bright brains around him. Like, I, I think Arsenal are set up for this and they should just lean into it. Mm, OK, very finally, let's just, you mentioned him, but let's talk William Saliba just for a for a minute without going into the nuts and bolts of, um, you know, the situation again. And we all know the loan thing and we all know uh, he's he's been unhappy. Just where do you stand on the on the prevalence of of interviews um that he that he's been doing since he went over there to be fair i did ask matt spiro what or if it were unusual for a, a player to be that open um that often in the media and he said look he's a really uh, highly thought of player here it hasn't gone right for him at arsenal after that mm-hmm. big money transfer it is not at all unusual for for him to be sought after by the media and, uh, you know, he has been pretty uh, open, I think, honest, if you like, about yep. how he's felt about it. I mean, does there um, – do you, A, do you have any issue with him being honest about how he's feeling about things? And B, does there come a point where you've said pretty much everything that needs to be said and it's time to, to get your head down and just let your football do the talking? Sure. So on the first one, no, no problem at all. The, the whole world can see that Arsenal messed that up um, and did not look like not being able to sort out loans. That's stuff that should be happening at like non-league clubs. That That is that does not belong at a club that regards themselves as any sort of elite. Um, mm. How often do you hear about that in the Premier League, even in the championship? You don't doesn't happen um incredibly unprofessional i can completely understand i would be shocked if he wasn't pissed off at arsenal with the way they've handled him um so i I don't have any uh, any problem with him expressing that as for the amount of times he's expressed it i mean first of all if he, he can't really help it if he keeps getting asked the question, which I imagine he is. And the reason he keeps getting asked the question is because, as I said, it's really obvious Arsenal have fucked this up. Um, and that's why he keeps getting the question. It's um, to, to use an analogy, it's a little bit like if you want to stop getting red cards, stop, stop. having David Luiz <laughs> switching off. Stop having David Luiz. You legs. just have to stop there. <laughs> just stop having David Luiz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a bit like if you you don't want people to comment on your really stupid errors stop making really stupid errors yeah i like i do get it and particularly if you're an arsenal fan right like you feel even more like you 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 only want to hear that your club has been stupid so many times before you get sick of it um and i understand that um i i don't think he's really overdone it yet i imagine he keeps getting asked the question so he keeps answering it Mm. whether that that fades with time i imagine it probably will um, and and really, look. Ultimately, it's going to be all about his performances on the pitch. That that's going to be the most important thing. And when, if and when he comes back, Arsenal are probably going to have to mend some bridges. And that's going to be down to the quality of work that Edu and Mikel Arteta do. Um, but I'd really like them to. I'd really like Edu to say to Arteta, right, your forward line sorted. Your centre-halves are sorted as well now. We bought three of the ones you wanted and we spent £30 million on this other guy and whether you like him or not, that's what's here. Work yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, and perhaps look at other areas of the team, left-back, central midfield. That's where we'll put the money now. Um, so I, I think it's, it's incumbent on the club to mend that bridge. And, you know, Arteta's got to get used to the idea he's not a Man City anymore. He can't just throw 30 million defenders in the reserves because he doesn't like them. It's not the way it's not the way Arsenal can operate. So yeah. um, if he wants to come up in the coaching world, you know, 
prove prove your metal as a coach. Yeah, uh, and look, coach I, the kid. Yeah, exactly. I, I I agree with that. I also think it, it, it's also fair to point out, you know, that this this idea that somehow Arteta really doesn't like Saliba. Um, you know, people can come to that conclusion if they want. At the same time, you know, there is. Uh, little precedent for 19-year-old central defenders to start week in, week out for for Premier League teams. And that's, you know, again, of course he could have played in the Europa League. Of course he could have played against Dundalk and Mulder. Of course. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but that is a consequence of not sorting out that loan, which was the really stupid thing. So, you know, it's easy to say Arteta doesn't like him or hates him or, or anything like that, but there may well be an element of him just really deeming a, a young defender not ready and not quite ready yet for the Premier League and hopefully this loan at Nice does him the world of good and he can come back and, and stake a claim in, in the first team next season. So, Indeed, uh, yeah. indeed. It's it's just, it's a vibe I pick up. Yeah. You're right, there isn't, there isn't really evidence for it yet. Yeah, not yet anyway. So look, we'll see what the next few months bring us and what the next William Saliba interview brings us. We might get some more insight from the man himself. Anyway, look, we better leave it there for now. Tim, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure as always. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto, at Stilberto. He writes a column every week for arsblog.com. And, of course, uh, you can find the best coverage anywhere of the Arsenal women's team over on Arsblog News. There is a dedicated section with all the latest news, match reports, match previews, and, of course, the number one podcast about the Arsenal women anywhere. So check it out over at arsblog.news. Looking ahead very quickly to the game on Sunday against Leeds, as we mentioned earlier, no Thomas Partey and no Kieran Tierney. What would I do if I were Mikel Arteta in that situation? Hmm. I mean, yeah, what I would do, and obviously this is not to say that Mikel Arteta would do likewise. In fact, he may he may have better and smarter ideas uh, about what to do with his team than me. But in place of Thomas Partey, I would play Danny Ceballos. And at left back, I have to say, I I would be really tempted by Bukayo Saka there, to be honest. I would use a front three of Aubameyang on the left, Lacazette, and Pepe on the right. I know Saka has been brilliant there, but I just feel like we miss a little bit of balance uh, with a left-footed player at left back, and he is the natural option if Tierney's not there. It's not that I think Cedric has been terrible. I don't think he's been terrible. I don't think he's been brilliant or anything, but I just feel like until we can get Tierney back to give the team the balance it requires, and let's not beat around the bush. Saka has been brilliant from the right, but he can be equally effective particularly from a creative point of view, if perhaps not quite as much from a goal-scoring point of view on the left-hand side. He created two good opportunities against Aston Villa. He set up Odegaard for that shot he hit over. He set up uh, Aubameyang for a header he should have done better with. So if it were me, and of course it's not, but if it were, that's something I would be very tempted by because, uh, you know, you still have three players in those front three positions who can do plenty and have done plenty from those positions before. And you've got a, a number 10 in behind them. You've got uh, Smith Rowe or Odegaard, whoever you want to play in there. And then you've got Ceballos who, you know, on his day can pick a pass or two in a midfield. It's going to be a, a difficult game against Leeds. They are very energetic, as we know, and they're going to run a lot. But 
but if you can be smart with your passing and your movement and you've got a left back who can overlap and you've got a a 10 who can connect things and yeah let's let's go at them I think um that will be my thinking on it it's a game we got to win because we've got to get back on track um after the disappointing results against Wolves and Villa give ourselves the maximum opportunity of creating chances and therefore scoring goals and I think Saka a left back even if it takes something away from your right hand side gives you more on that left hand side than than uh, if you're playing a right footed player out of position so look that game is Sunday at 4.30 and then of course we've got to contend with uh, European travel uh, and all the rest as we face Benfica in the Europa League on Thursday so something we can look forward to a little bit on the Arscast Extra on Monday and of course myself and James will be here reviewing whatever happens against Leeds fingers crossed a good display a good performance three points some goals I'll take three points whatever way we can get them though keep fingers crossed for that we will of course have a Leeds preview podcast for Patreon members that'll be available for you at some point on Friday afternoon slash evening patreon.com forward slash arsblog in the meantime thank you very much as always for being here thank you for listening hope you enjoyed the show Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, wear a mask, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. sincere advertising voice trying to let you know that the company I'm doing this voiceover for absolutely understands how difficult everything is at this moment in time. Then I'm going to say something twee and cloying like, we're all in this together and together we can make a difference. But really all we want is for you to buy the thing we're selling. So from everybody here at Pete's Purple Dildos, let's hope for better days. Let's hope for happier days, for deadline days. Pete's Purple Dildos should not be inserted fully into the ears of reporters. Please sterilize before use. Allow 28 days for delivery. Terms and conditions apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.